Thank you, Pastor Jason, the worship team. Indeed, the Lord is good, and we come today to celebrate his goodness, and uh, he certainly has blessed us. And I am impressed with all the grandparents here today. How wonderful is that? If uh, the doctor's right and the baby's willing, in three months and 12 days, Kelly and I get to join that wonderful association. And uh, so we'll say, well, uh, yeah, easy for you to say, right? So, uh, but we're excited for that, for sure, and looking forward to uh, great things ahead uh, today. This has been an interesting time period, for sure. Kelly and I just had a conversation, I think, last night about, uh, you know, it's been six months now uh, since life changed as we know it from our normal routines, and um, who would have thought six months ago that we'd be this far into it? I don't think any of us would have much, and who knows what the next six months will hold. But uh, through it all, you know, uh, I hope you're catching the fact that we're running these pre-service videos. And I hope you're, you may be playing your schedule. Come a little early and watch the videos on the missionaries. What a great encouragement they are, a great reminder uh, of the challenges that uh, our missionaries are facing, but the wonderful way in which they're going through it. And I, I appreciate the words that uh, Derek Moreland used this morning. In some way, he said at the end there, we're pressing forward with our faith in Christ. And I thought, that's it. Regardless of whether you're in Oxford, England, or Guilford County, we're pressing forward. And that's the call that we intend to pursue today. And um, our time before us is precious because it allows us to open up the Lord's Word. We woke today, many of us, I'm sure if you've had the opportunity to even glimpse at the news this morning, we woke to the news of two Los Angeles police officers that were ambushed and shot. Both of them in critical condition. and and um, the ripple effect that certainly that has caused in our thoughts. And I want to begin our service today with a moment of prayer for those two individuals, a mother, one of them for sure, a male and a female, and, um, and their families. We have no connection to them. Los Angeles is somewhere on the other side of the world. I'm not sure where, but it's a long way away. But nonetheless, I think it's an appropriate reason for us to once again lift our hearts before the Lord. So before we start, I'd like for us to pray. Father, we come today to recognize your goodness. You're good even when situations are bad, when circumstances are hard, when there are questions without answers. You are good. And we today affirm that in our hearts, we affirm it in our voices, and we with confidence say with our friend Derek, we are pressing forward with our faith in you. And today we come to recognize your goodness. We come to realize today, Lord, that there is evil in the world, and that evil has shown itself again in the innocent shooting of two police officers. And today we stand, not having any connection with them, humanly speaking, but we stand to join our hearts and our voices to lift those two officers up and the medical teams that are working with them. We lift up their families. One I know has a little six-year-old child, and I pray that you'll just show your presence and your evidence of mercy and grace and your presence and strength may be so obvious around them through this time. May, be, may they be surrounded by praying Christians. May they know the, the words of comfort that can be found in the truth of your word. We commit them to you. We know not even at this very moment their situation, but we pray, Father, that you will do a mighty work there. And in praying for them, Father, we pray for our country. We pray that you'll have your will and way. We pray that righteousness will prevail that evil indeed will be overthrown in the streets and cities, in the homes and in the lives of individuals that have been wrapped in sin. We pray the power of Christ will once again 
show itself to be more than sufficient for the changing of lives, for the changing of homes, for the changing of a country. And we pray that you will allow, Father, those things to come about through the elections even that will bring righteousness to this land. Rachel, bless our time now as we, we bring before um, our hearing words from the truth of the scriptures. And may they not only encourage us, but remind us that you indeed seek a people who will follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Friday, of course, was the um, 19th anniversary of 9-11. And that's a, you know, that's a memory burned in the etching of many of us here as adults. Um, just the reality of that moment, probably like, like, like uh, many, we can all remember where we were. I remember so much of that morning. Uh, I was a school principal at the time. And uh, coming into the office from some other duties and somebody mentioning something's happened in, in New York and, and just the, the little bit of craziness it created for our campus that day and what was involved with that. And um, just a, an amazing event. Hard to believe what time passes, right? We talk about six months, about 19 years. And how different life was. Uh, and the spirit and the feeling. And, you know, one of the things that arose out of that event was this phrase, we will never forget. We've probably heard it many times, I'm sure. We will never forget. But I began to think, what is it we're not supposed to forget? Here are my thoughts. We will never forget the cowardly act of war driven by Islamic fanaticism. And by the way, that fanaticism has not gone away. We should never forget the damage done and the thousands of innocent lives lost on the events of that tragic day. Of course, in New York, but also in Pennsylvania and at the Pentagon. I was in Washington this week and again drove by the Pentagon and just hard to not be there during this week and think about the events of that day. We should never forget the courage of those who fought back. Probably you remember the phrase, let's roll that came out of the airline that went down to Pennsylvania. Those who were willing to do what was needed and the courage that they exhibited. We should never forget the first responders, those heroes who rushed in to save a multitude of lives and in many cases gave their own lives as a result. And of course we can never forget the masses who responded by courageously answering the call to go and defend our nation in the global war on terror. And as a result, the thousands that gave their lives in that war, lives that they gave to protect our land. The motto I heard frequently and remember was, we'll fight the war there so we don't have to fight the war here. But I think we also need to remember evil exists. It existed then. It exists now. It has existed through the history of humanity since the fall. As was evidenced by the shooting of those police officers. Evil is not new. The reality is it is a part of our world, part of a fallen world. Not part of God's created world. It was created good. As a matter of fact, it was created very good. What Genesis 1 tells us. But the fall changed all of that. And when sin entered the pages of human history, it only sought for more casualties. It only sought for more chaos. It sought for more destruction and more death. 
We can never forget that. Today I want to bring before us passages. I'd be hard-pressed to say turn to, to this book and to this chapter and to this verse, and we're going to spend our time in a few verses today because I'm going to, I'm going to take us through several passages that I think are appropriate for the time that we're in. And as we never forget the events of 9-11, may it only be a small portion of the reality I think the Scripture calls us to today so that we understand what happens when a nation forgets. I hope you can see that. It didn't show up very well on my screen. When a nation forgets. Because I'm going to speak to us to an event into a mindset greater than one event on September the 11th, 2001. We've had many events that through our own country's history, we've said, we'll not forget. We'll remember. Going back to the 1830s, remember the Alamo was the call that led Sam Houston and, and his uh, troops to pursue Santa Ana. In 1915, the sinking of the Lusitania, a British ship, British Empire ship, was sunk by a German U-boat. Some 1,200 perished, a couple of hundred of which were Americans. The rally cry in, 2015, in 1915, rather, was remember the Lusitania. It was really the turning point that got us into World War I. And of course, 1941, remember Pearl Harbor was the rally cry that called a nation again to the reality of war, the necessary of fighting evil, pushing it back for the freedom and liberation of multiplied millions. So to say we'll never forget is not new to the events of September the 11th. As a matter of fact, it's not new to humanity at all. Because a nation can forget. And in that situation of forgetting, they only choose to put themselves in peril. Our example today comes from the book of Judges. Probably not the book most of us would run to for a Bible study. It's a book filled with lots of stories and lots of intrigue and lots of, uh, lots of violence in some ways. It's a book that tells us about a period of time in the history of Israel that follows when they went into the Promised Land. Right? We know the story of Exodus. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. God provides for them a crossing of the Red Sea. They go to Mount Sinai and receive the word. They gather themselves. We're off to the promised land. But then they get to a place called Kadesh Barnea, and they have to make a decision. We'll send the spies in and let them tell us what it is we're going to. We've never been there. No one's ever sent us a postcard. We don't know what the promised land means. Let's send the spies in. The spies come back, too, with glowing reports. This is a place God has promised us. You won't believe your eyes when you see it. And ten others had a negative report. Yeah, you won't believe what's there. I, can't, I just don't know how we're going to win this. And the nation made a decision at Kadesh Barnea that turned them into the wilderness. And they wondered. And through that wondering, I wonder how many times they thought, could the promised land be any worse than this? They had forgotten who God was. Once they do get to the promised land, eventually, of course, there by the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is now at the end of his life, and he will pass away. The mantle of leadership is handed to Joshua. And that mantle, in that position of, of the mantle of leadership, he seeks God. And we open up the book of Joshua to find that in the very few first chapters, they cross over the, the Jordan River as God had again parted uh, the waters 
gave them a way to walk through to the promised land. And of course, there they first encountered Jericho, where God reveals himself mightily to bring down the walls of that great city and to demonstrate his power and his sufficiency. They would go into the promised land not walking around cities and watching the walls fall, but they would go into the promised land having their own battles. And we read through the book of Joshua to find all of the battles that they had to engage in. And I'm sure those were tough, challenging moments and times and situations. But if the promised land was going to be theirs, as God would lead them, they would have to encounter those battles. By the time they settled in the promised land, there's no king. There's no one leader. Joshua and his generation pass away. And we open the book of Judges to find out that that generation had been so brave and so courageous and probably in some form of Hebrew said, let's roll, that generation passed away. And it's always true, the next generation comes up, and the next generation after them, and the next generation after them. Judges covers a period of about 400 years. And in that 400 years, generation after generation after generation has to learn the lessons all over again. And what they have to learn is that their faith should be in God. The one who delivered their forefathers from Egypt, who brought them across the Red Sea and the Jordan, who delivered to them Jericho, their faith should be in him. But no, they got caught up in the world around them. Look at all these Canaanites. Look at, look at their lives. Look at their gods. Their gods don't have all these rules. We like their gods. And so they got wrapped up in being involved in the culture. The scripture in Judges is replete with passages that give us God's perspective to that attitude of what Israel did, a nation. Listen to these verses from Judges 2.11. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. What was it they did? The verse goes on to say they served Baal. Do we know Baal? Remember Baal from the Old Testament? Baal is a, is a Canaanite god that is represented in many different forms and idols. As a matter of fact, as you read in the English translations, beginning with the King James, you'll see the word Balaam, B-A-L-I-M. It's just a way to, to recognize the plural. They serve the Baals, plural. And they, and they worshiped in the groves. They had these out, outside worship areas. That's the condemnation God gives to them. The scripture tells us plainly, the children of Israel did evil inside of the Lord. That's Judges 2.11. Judges 3, 7, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, listen to this, and forgot the Lord their God and served Baal. As a result, they went into servitude by a Mesopotamian king for eight years. A generation had something to learn. By the time we get to chapter 4 and verse 1, the commentary of the scripture is, and the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. As a result, they went into captivity by the Canaanites. Chapter 6, verse 1, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. As a result, they went into service of the Midianites. Do you see the pattern? They kept wandering away from what they knew to be true. And they began to follow these idols. And their own decision brought them to this place of being a destitute people. They were poor, they were, 
They were desolate in their lives. And all they could do is cry unto God. And God in his mercy brought up deliverers one after another. That's what a judge is, by the way. We think of a judge as being someone in a black robe in a courtroom. The word is it's used in this historical context means someone who delivers the nation of Israel. And as you read the book of Judges, you're reading the story of these individuals whom God rose up in different generations and in different places to overthrow the enemies of Israel because the people had got to a point that they were repenting. So chapter 6, verse 1 tells us again, they did evil. Chapter 13, verse 1, and the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. As a result, they went into the slavery of the Philistines for 40 years. And this wasn't the same generation happening all over again. It was generation, then the next generation, and then the next generation. It seemed to be a vicious cycle. I think there's something for us to learn today in the sad story of Israel during these hundreds of years. Judges 8.34 gives us this insight. And the children of Israel remembered not the Lord their God, who had delivered them out of the hand of their enemies on, the, on every side. They remembered not. They had forgotten. This, event, this series of events would be referenced later in Israel's history. And there were times when future generations looked back and said, Let's not be like those generations that forgot. Psalms has just two, two examples for our time today. Psalms 106 verse 21 tells of the psalmist thinking back to that generation, and here's the words, they forgot God their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt. They forgot. Psalm 78, they remembered not his hand, nor the day when he delivered them from the enemy. The sad reality the scripture gives us in multiple perspectives is that the people forgot. They forgot who God was. They forgot his compassion, his love, his power. They forgot his willingness and his capacity to deliver them and to lead them. Are we starting to hear anything relative to our day and time yet? Indeed, it's very true we live in a time when, to many, God has been forgotten. But what does it mean to forget God? It means they willingly ignored him. At best, they were just giving him a glance. God's still there? Okay, just checking. That's all they were doing. They willingly ignored him and said, we'll live life our way. We'll pursue these idols. We like Baal. We'll worship Ashtaroth, another of the idols of the Canaanites. That's where our affections will lie, God. But by the way, yeah, you're still there. Okay, we're good. That's, that's all they gave God the attention to. They forgot God. They ignored him. They worshiped their idols. They acted as if God doesn't exist or that God doesn't matter. And that attitude is rampant today. Lots of people just, oh, well, yeah, God's there, I guess, but who cares? Doesn't impact my life, my family. In their own actions and attitudes, Israel suffered impoverishment and enslavement. They suffered the consequences because of their choices. They became the object of pagan kings 
who disheartened them, who discouraged them, and who demoralized them. They were foolish enough to think that their way was right and that God was insignificant. That truly is a statement of a fool. My way is right and God is insignificant. Indeed, they forgot God. But only if that's all they had done. Forgetting God was just the first step in a downward spiral Later in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel himself refers back to this generation. This is a, a passage where Samuel, the last of the judges, and one of the, 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 the great characters, certainly, of, Israel, of Israel's history, he is in his old age. And in speaking to the people of Israel, he refers to those generations of the judges, and he says, when they forgot the Lord their God, they cried unto the Lord. Their words were, we have sinned, and here's how Samuel says it in quoting that generation. We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served Baal. You see, forgetting God is a terrible step, but it only leads to the next step, and that is forsaking God. Now, the people of Israel weren't just saying, okay, God, I guess if you're there, okay, all's good. They turned their back on God. Judges 10 even gives us that perspective. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, we have sinned against thee because we have forsaken our God. Forgetting God is bad, but forsaking God is a much worse step. It says that we have absolutely no use or no purpose for God. We don't care if he exists or doesn't exist. We just know that we have our life to live. And we're going to do it our way. Frank Sinatra, some of you will remember, made a song pretty famous about that whole thought, didn't he? I'll do it my way. What a prideful and arrogant thought. Second Chronicles chapter 29, much later in the history of Israel, tells us about one of the kings of Israel. Now again, without taking all the time to go through the details, let's remember Israel was a united country. Once the period of the judges was over, the people cried for a king. I think in their own way, just saying, we can't live like this anymore. Give us a king to bring some unity. And so God placed Saul in that position as the first king. Saul's life was a bit of a dichotomy. He had a few good moments, mostly some bad moments, ended in terrible tragedy. The kingdom then would be passed to the next great king, although there was a short period there where Saul's son ruled. The next great king, of course, was David, following David, Solomon, during the golden era of Israel's history. God blessed Israel during that time of their leadership. They weren't perfect men either. They certainly had their faults. But God blessed the people in a way that he had wanted to, but they were never willing. But then turmoil came again at the death of Solomon. Then one nation of Israel split into two nations. 
10 tribes in the north, two in the south. They split over lots of, lots of reasons. We don't have time to go into that. And over the period of the next many decades, there would be a total of 33 kings in both of those divided kingdoms. Most of them were bad kings. They too thought in their position they could lead a nation apart from God. Second Chronicles 29 tells us about one of the good kings, Hezekiah. Hezekiah, when he becomes king of Israel, is just 25 years old. But he is a 25-year-old with a passion and a heart for God. He will rule Israel for some 29 years during one of its, one of its greater periods. Or, uh, I said Israel, Judah, really, the southern part of the kingdom. Here's Hezekiah's words as he called together the Levites. What do you do when you start leading a nation? He didn't call together economic advisors. He didn't call together all of the military advisors. He called together the Levites. They were the priestly tribe of Israel. Hezekiah had the wisdom to know that he had to get the spiritual part right first before everything would fall in place on other areas. So Hezekiah says to the Levites, Our fathers have trespassed and done that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and have forsaken him. He realized it. And have turned away their faces in the habitation, from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs on God. To forget God is bad. To forsake God simply says, God, I don't care. I'm going my way. Regardless of what you or your word says, Hezekiah recognized that. Forgetting God was the first step toward forsaking God. Where once they may have glanced at God just to make sure he was still there in their own human limitations, now they aggressively turned their backs on God. But only if it had stopped there. Forsaking God was not the end of their downfall either. Hezekiah would have a son who didn't follow in the righteousness of his father. His son was Manasseh. Manasseh was one of those 33 evil kings. And in the story of Manasseh, he reversed what his father had done. He went back and rebuilt those worship centers for the idols. He even took idols and placed them in the very temple in Jerusalem. The temple dedicated to God had idols in it. That's a forbidding attitude. God, you can't tell me what to do. You stay where you're at and don't cross the boundary, and I will take care of everything else. They forbid God. What was the life of Manasseh like? He sacrificed his own sons by burning them to death in the worship of the idol Moloch. Folks, that is not just sinful. That is not just bad. That is evil. Evil personified by demonic oppression, no doubt, and possession. A man would take his own sons and burn them to death on an altar for an idol god. It's just impossible for me to wrap my consciousness around that thought. But he did it. And not just to one. 
Historians tell us the rule of Manasseh, echoing what the scripture tells us, is that Manasseh executed so many people that one historian said he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other with innocent blood. It was as if you could walk down the streets and there's a dead body and there's a dead body and there's a dead body and all you could say was Manasseh's henchman got another one. This is the ultimate end of forgetting God. That leads to forsaking God. That leads to forbidding God. No God, you can't go this far. Again, does it sound like something in our culture today? We have said to God, we've forgotten you, God. We as a nation. We have said to God, we have forsaken you. And we have said to God, we have forbidden you. In less than half a century, we as a nation have seen Bibles and prayers forbidden in the public square, in the public schools, and in the public debates. The music, literature, media, and often political leaders scoff at God and his place in our country's history. They mock us with biblical convictions and ridicule those who propose a need for more righteousness in the land, their, mo their motive is more sin, more debauchery. The culture suffers because there are no biblical convictions in our land today. I say no realizing there are some, but boy, it seems to be the minority. There's not enough, that's for sure. And with no moral compass, where is any nation bound to go? Only down a path of destruction and despair. Everybody can do whatever they want to. That's not new to the 21st century American world we live in. Judges, the book, says it twice. In chapter 17 and chapter 12, the very same words. In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That reality has resurrected itself in 21st century America. You just do what's right in your own eyes. After all, if you have no standard, if you have no biblical and moral compass to build right and wrong upon, is anything really wrong? We've seen it in our land these last many months where individuals have taken upon themselves to not only break the law, but to violate any sense of moral decency. Proverbs 12.15 reminds us the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. We have thrown out the morals that have made this, this country great because they were morals built upon biblical truth. It is documented in the political platform of one major party that their goal is to promote abortion under all circumstances. That their intent is to support the LGBTQ education at all grade levels, including the lowest of the elementary schools. It is documented in their platform 
They support the expanding and availability of drugs in our land. Well, that will surely make America better. Let's give everybody more drugs, right? That's their mindset. I submit to you that's not just sinful, that's evil. That same political party recently at their convention, in two of their convention-related meetings, purposely left out the phrase under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. We've lived in a time where lawsuits have been filed to try and remove the phrase under God in our, in our Pledge of Allegiance and to remove the phrase in God we trust as our national motto. We have seen in the past few weeks groups burning crosses, burning Bibles, and burning churches all in the name of protest. What happens when a nation forgets? A nation will eventually lead to forbidding. It's the natural progression. It's evidenced in Israel, and it's in the world around us today. That's one of the reasons why I believe this election is important. A little more than 50 days, we have the opportunity to make our voices known. Let us be, as Christians, first, diligent to learn God's word, ready to follow God's word, and intentional to teach God's word to the generations coming up after us. Let us make sure we prioritize our Christian faith and the biblical truth it reflects through church, prayer, serving others, being a testimony. Let's affirm the importance of absolute truth as it applies to our lives, our marriages, our homes, our children, and our grandchildren. Let us be willing to confess our personal and our national need for the Lord. The scripture still tells us in Psalms 33, 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And in Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach. It's a trap. It's a deadly end to any people. Ronald Reagan had it right at the prayer breakfast in 1984 when he stated this, quote, if we ever forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be a nation gone under, end quote. He was right. Indeed, we stand at a threshold. This election will have a lot to it. And you have heard me say it before, and I promise, as the Lord allows, you will hear me say it again. That's why Christian values... Christian voices and Christian votes must be heard and counted on this election day. We pray to close, remembering the shameful lessons that the nation of Israel learned. Let it not be, as the Lord tarries, that future generations will look back at us during our time and say, why didn't they? I don't understand. What were they thinking? We're here for a short time. It's called a lifespan. And we need to be sure that we are following the path of truth laid out for the purposes of which God intends. And we have that opportunity. So let's be praying these next 50 plus days. Let's be pursuing righteousness. Let's understand that a vote by a Christian is the most important vote that will be cast, I believe, this election. 
because it gives us the opportunity to see and express God's values in the voting box. Let's pray there. Father, thank you for the lessons you've recorded for us in your scriptures. They are hard lessons to see and understand. We, we ask, how could a generation forget? How could a generation forsake? How could a generation forbid? We ask, Lord, that you would allow us in this generation, in this time, in this place, to learn that lesson. And that we commit ourselves afresh and anew to the truth of your word, to the teaching of your word, that we may again see this nation built and continue to build upon a foundation of truth from your word. I pray that you'll allow us as a church and our community to have an impact for the gospel, that as we live it out, as people see in us the values that we hold high, we pray that they'll see you as our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray, amen.